one of my cousins got married and I've seen other weddings where the groom arrived on horseback and this was the first time where I attended in person and the groom arrived on an elephant. On an elephant? Yes. African or Indian? Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. It's your host, Karsten, and today I'm here with Jyoti, the official representative of the Thai Indian community in Thailand. <laughs> She's shaking her head. Yeah, because um, anything from the official or non-official representative of the Thai Indian community. But you are... Uh, definitely, definitely a Thai Indian. Well, maybe I should say Indian Thai, like an Indian born in Thailand. Okay, where were you born? Bangkok. <laughs> But you didn't grow up in Bangkok, right? Well, I spent my very early toddler years in Bangkok, then I moved down to South Thailand in Patani. Obviously, the Indian community migrated here. I don't know how long ago. My personal family would have been at least 90 years ago. So I'm sure there were other families who arrived here much longer. Do, do they tell you stories from back then? A little bit. And I think this is where I probably should have asked more questions for my grandfather and my grandmother when they were still alive. Because my grandfather was the one who I know migrated. He was very young at the time. He was only 13 years old. He migrated when he was 13. If I got my facts right, you know, I hope I've got it right. I should have called my mom before this interview. <laughs> But yeah, I think he, he moved here when he was quite young, 13 or 15. He already had an uncle here. But my grandfather came at the time when India and Pakistan were separated and people were being asked to move across the border where Muslims were asked to move into Pakistan and non-Muslims to move back into India side. My grandfather's village ended up becoming Pakistan and his family were non-Muslims. So they were moving back to India. But by then his parents had died. So he just felt that Maybe it's time to venture out on his own adventure and decided to come to Thailand. Sounds very similar to a lot of stories of the people who move now to Thailand. Yeah. They're like, you know, there's nothing holding them back in their home country anymore. And, you know, if they have to sit down somewhere else, they might as well make it an adventure. Yeah, and plus, you know, coming back to your earlier question about why were those concentration, my guess is people want a certain sense of familiarity. So if they know somebody, it could be a neighbor from the old village who didn't really know that well. But suddenly, when you move to a completely new environment, somebody, even a familiar name that you've never met before, suddenly become a lifeline support. It must have been a few months ago. I went out with a few friends of mine who were visiting from the States. And we went to some club. And they were looking around and they spotted a group of Indian Thai women dancing with each other and another friend of mine. He's like, oh, they look cute. And I'm like, don't bother. 
<laughs> and he said, no, 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 I'll go over there. I'm like, don't, don't bother. <laughs> he walks over. I just see her turning around and giving him the finger, like, literally first thing on the spot. I thought really? it was hilarious. Um, but obviously what I was thinking is like, yeah, this, this is such a close community. It's also a chosen thing a bit. Let's like say, okay, you want to stay amongst themselves. You tend to marry maybe amongst themselves. Using your example there, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily because it's a different ethnic background you know sometimes i've gone out with my girlfriends and they might not necessarily i remember one occasion i was out with two other friends one's japanese and the other is um from eastern europe and we just wanted it to be a girl's night um, we just don't want guys to come interrupt it it could just be something as simple as that could be do you, th <laughs> do you think Thainians are more likely to marry other Thainians? In general, in the past, that has been the case, but again, I think it's changing. I remember having an employee who was actually talking about you know, either having to find someone in the community, she was Indian Thai, and she was talking about either having to find someone in the community here or maybe going back to India to find someone there. No, in India, it's like the parents take a much stronger involvement in the Yeah. relationship choices of their kids. Yeah. Is that here the case as well? It used to be, I would say, 40, even 30, 25 years ago. But in the last 15, maybe not as far as 20, but definitely the last up to 15 years ago, it's all changed. Yeah. It may still be that people do still end up marrying other Indian ties, but again, it's part of that's who your circle of friends are, you know. They go to the same school, that's who they tend to run into more. They may be neighbors, they may be family friends, but there is a shift away from the arranged marriage, definitely, a huge shift away already. Of course, once the, the guy and the woman, they start to like each other, they date, etc., just as any normal relationship. Once it gets to the point where they feel that they're ready to take it to the next step, the culture might mean the parents do become involved in the sense of the parents would then go to speak to the, the bride's parents to ask for their hand in marriage, which is, of course, the more traditional approach, but it's not the same as what used to happen say 50 years ago where it was completely arranged where the bride and groom may not have even met or known or spoken to each other mm. but there's also like i mean um uh, well a gradual mm -hmm. change in that you know maybe it's not arranged but maybe the parents present their choices and say okay here are you know three I'm sure that still happens too. I don't know because I just don't know enough people. All my friends are already married since some time ago and I've never asked how it works with their kids. But from what I see, just the general impression is the arranged marriage is happening less and less. Hmm. Do you recall examples from you know your own family or community where you noticed there was maybe not just things were ha being handled differently, but it also caused some kind of conflict with other people in the community? I'd have to say not so much, especially in my own family, because 
I think we've been very fortunate that my grandfather is very open-minded and he always treated both my mom and my uncle, i.e. his daughter and son, very equally. For her time, my mom went on to go to college, which was a very rare thing. After she graduated from college, she worked outside the family business. Again, a very rare thing because we're talking this was about 60 years ago or well, at least 50 years ago. So for me, I think I've never had to even think about issues like, you know, the gender equality within the family because I've been so fortunate that my mom had, had has always had the same opportunity as anybody would give their own son and was extended to her as a daughter. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see this causing friction with other people? I wouldn't say it's friction, but of course, you know, during those times, my mom would get questioned by other women who look at her as, why do you have... women? What did they ask? I don't know specifics, but, you know, just a general impression. Things like, how come you have to work outside the home? Um, do you not want to work at home or in the family business to support your husband or, you know, things along that line. I think it was more an unspoken question at a lot of times rather than an outright question. Mm. Yeah. How is it with the gender roles? I mean, you're talking about supporting your husband. Mm-hmm. Is that more present in the Indian Thai community than, let's say, in the Thailand in general? I think, again, it's a question of the times and the generation. You know, if you go back 50 years, you look at any community, particularly in all across Asia, women's role were more expected to be in the homes rather than working out in offices. In agricultural, maybe that's slightly different. I don't know about 50 years ago, but these days, or say 30 years ago, women have always been working working in the fields. But if you look at offices or, you know, the more industrial area, you didn't find a lot of women working outside the homes back 50 years ago. Would, would you today still see as defining parts of the Indian Thai community, what sets them apart? I don't think I can put that down as a defining aspect because, as I said, things change so much over the years and now everybody have their own very individualistic nature and how they approach life. You know, I'm sure the people who work in offices, who are heading offices, who are heading businesses, And there will be people who are very happy to be at home and raise their family. Or on the other hand, they may be working alongside their husbands or their sons or their daughters in family businesses. So there's a range of completely variety of situations and dynamics at play these days. You mentioned family businesses. Mm -hmm. I think... Uh, there are probably a lot of industries where you'll find a lot of predominantly Thai Indian people running them. Yeah. I think gemstones, mm-hmm. you'll have that a lot. 
And there's just like certain slices of the economic pie that were kind of taken up by this group. How do you feel about that? I don't look at it as an ethnic makeup of who's responsible for which part of the pie. We talked outside of this interview about you know, my background working in economic freedom. The main essence of economic freedom is you don't look at quotas. Yeah? Everybody has equal opportunities and it all comes down to skills. It's you know. also trust networks, right? I mean, it's much easier to do business if there's mm -hmm. people you trust. And maybe in the past, their laws were not strong enough that you would trust them, but it's more like connections you have. So it kind of... See, if you look at the broad view of doing business, what do you need to do for business to be successful? You need customers. Yeah, You cannot have a niche business that's targeted only to a certain ethnic group. Of course, there are some businesses like that because of the nature of the product, you know, certain kind of clothing perhaps. But in general, you cannot be focused and you cannot be tied down to ethnicity when you want to live in the world. Is there a family business for you? My Mom and my brother, they work together on a business. Would that be a family business per se? I wouldn't say so. I would have said so. No, because it's something that my mom's been working on for many, many years. My brother's been working alongside her for the last 30 years. Mm, what business? Um, it's um, wholesale and retail textile. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've worked hard on it. So it's their business. It's not family in the sense that I can go in and suddenly assume that it's going to be partly owned by me. So no, there is no family business. Is that unique? Is it unique? I mean, the, I know a lot of Thai businesses kind of when there is someone in the family that is successful as your mom and your brother, mm -hmm. then often they kind of involve other family members and sometimes just to a small degree and kind of everybody is a little bit part of it. I'm yeah. not sure how much of that is, you know, expected and how much of that is just a conscious decision to get everybody on board or... I think every case would be different, you know, because there might be situations where... Um, Let's say at this point, because my brother doesn't have kids yet, but let's say he did have kids, maybe it does get passed on to the kids, but we can't make that assumption because maybe the kids want to do something else. Maybe they want to be, you know, running a restaurant. Maybe they want to become engineers. We don't know, so we can't make that assumption. Do you have a lot? How many siblings do you have? My older brother and me. So, <laughs> couldn't it be that at some point that will land on your shoulders? I don't think so. You know, my brother is very capable of doing what he's doing. And we're not all that much far apart in terms of our age. So, it's not like he's going to become a lot older, quicker than I am and wants to retire and pass it on to me. <laughs> Talking about family, mm -hmm. I think one thing I see from my other Thai Indian friends is that 
they I guess are less likely to have a family because they're so worried about what it costs to get married. Is it? Well, they're like, you know, it's... Oh. Indian weddings can be quite uh, elaborate, Elaborate. Right? Can be very elaborate. Do you remember any specific ones? I think the, the last one that was very unique for me was one of my cousins got married and I've seen other weddings where the groom arrived on horseback and this was the first time where... I attended in person and the groom arrived on an elephant. On an elephant? Yes. African or Indian? I think it's a Thai elephant. I guess they're Indian, right? The, the, the tiny ears, I think. Well, I don't oh, know, funny. but I'm assuming the particular elephant was Thai because he or she would have been born in Thailand. Huh. What, <laughs> what did you think when, that, when you saw the elephant walk in? I was very impressed that whoever was controlling the elephant could get the elephant to walk up the slope of the hotel lobby and as you approach the top of the you know the, the this was like in a level, driveway the yeah it was a sloping upward driveway to reach the front of the lobby and once you got to the front it had a ceiling which was not all that high so it was just just barely uh, slightly higher than the height of the elephant and I felt sorry for the groom because I think he had to almost lie down rather than sit well that's not that's a little bit less glamorous than you probably had imagined it, I, I, mean. I could be wrong because I was looking from a lower angle obviously <laughs> <laughs> okay well what do you think the average Indian wedding costs in Bangkok like how much do people spend on that I hear it could cost up to a million or more. A million. Or maybe it's, yes. I hope I'm wrong. You might not be. So, do who pays? I think the general convention is the bride's family, but the groom's family would then either have a very generous gift for the bride and groom to, you know, show appreciation. I, I remember in India, it's normal that um, the family of the bride gives a monetary gift to the groom's family. Is that uh, right? let, me, let me add, though, actually, because there's many different functions okay. related to a wedding, certain functions of the wedding is, of course, hosted by the groom's family, while other aspects and other functions are hosted by the bride's family. Does it come down as 50-50 or...? Probably not. Mm. And that's where the groom's family would then offer a generous gift mm -hmm. so to, you think to, you know, I guess, balance things out a bit more. The practical reality is that people try to even the burden. I think people try to do that. Mm. Yeah. I heard traditionally it was that the bride's family had to, well, pay to get her married. They were like the ones mm -hmm. that were responsible for making a financial contribution whereas in Thailand it's the opposite the mm -hmm. groom has to make the financial the sinsort uh, yeah. contribution what happens if they marry each other like do they are they both very happy or are they uh... well I think you know I talked about the, uh, people being more individualistic earlier 
And I don't use that in a negative way. I use that in the sense of people are more free to make their own choices and they come to decisions together. And I believe it's the same with not just our marriages of different cultures, it's the same with also marriage within the Indian culture. Um, people talk about these things and work out what they can or can't do. And as to your question about the intercultures, I think usually the guy tries to do something to please the girl or the girl's family and I'm sure the girl would try to do the same too. Do you feel that the Indian Thai community in, in Thailand has developed their own set of values that is maybe separate from where they originally came from that you know that I mean they might uphold some traditions but if you then would go back to the originating place that I'm sure that happens for sure because you know say 15 years ago when I finished high school and went back to see some of my school friends and just general conversation we were having and they talked about how they felt that Indians here were a lot more conservative to compared to the same middle-class Indian communities who lived in city, you can't compare to people who lived in smaller rural towns because the, the practices there are, of course, much more conservative. But if you compare similar-sized city and what people were, people's lifestyles and people's practices, they felt that the people in Thailand or the Indian community in Thailand were more conservative than the equivalent of Indian people in Indian cities. Have you noticed that yourself as well? Um, to some extent, you know, say in my sort of late teens, early 20s, if I look at the Indian dress sense in India, it was a lot more adventurous whereas in Thailand we were still a lot more conservative in how we dressed. Like, for example? Just, you know, very short skirts or not very short skirts. So you compared skirt length India and Thailand? As and one example uh -huh. of, you know, um, maybe there's a general expectation for not just Indian women. In more conservative societies, women are expected to dress more modestly. Did you ever have a fight about that with your parents? Um, not a fight, no. They're like, oh, whatever. Or you're, were you preemptively adhering to their standards or what? I think I've gone a little bit beyond my late teens and early 20. So that question doesn't apply anymore. Okay, but I mean, what do you, I mean, what do you recall in there? How that was defined? I mean, I would assume my assumption would be that maybe Thai Indian parents are more involved in the lives of their kids than maybe your, the ones of your Eastern European or Japanese friends. I really can't say because, you know, see, I spend a lot of my time away from my mom, so I don't know what she might have, whether she might have had different expectations for me if we lived together all the time. So it's all hypothetical. I really can't comment on that. Mm. 
what would you say are the expectations nowadays? No idea. I think I think people are very open and give children lots of freedom, but I'm sure every family will have certain things that they might not appreciate. Um, I mean, you have Thai nationality, right? Mm -hmm. How did you get that? You were. I don't know. It was never even a question. I was born, went to a hospital, was given my birth certificate, uh -huh. and that's it. What about your mom? The same. So someone must have gotten Thai nationality, right? Well, my grandmother was born here. Uh, my grandfather didn't have Thai citizenship, but. When my mom was born, because she was born in Thailand, so she got her citizenship. How did you? I was wondering if I hear about these immigration waves that happened several decades ago. I mean, how did people come here and stay here? I mean, I assume your grandfather didn't do visa runs. No, but he did have to have a uh, documentation to give him it was like a permit to stay. But do you do you remember how that worked? No. No, but I don't think he was doing reporting every 90 days. Okay. Well, at least not online. Um, <laughs> do you, I mean, around that time, I think there were a lot of, also a lot of Chinese uh, migrants coming to Thailand. And if you look at the Chinese Thai community, developed maybe a bit different than the uh, Indian Thai community. What kind of, how would you perceive that? I think it's hard to say because, you know, Maybe, I don't know if the numbers were bigger from the Chinese migrating compared to the Indian migrating, but one key thing is the Indian ethnic group, in terms of our appearance, we look quite a fair way different to the Thai ethnic, whereas between Chinese and Thai, the differences are not as huge. Mm. How do you, do you notice that in your own life? I think so. I do because um, we talked about this earlier, didn't we? That you know, I don't know about being anything else other than Thai. But even after how many every years I've been Thai, I still get asked or complimented on how great my Thai speaking skill is almost every day. Like almost did it, did every it happen day. today. Uh, today, no, because I haven't been in a taxi yet. Okay, but once you get into a taxi? <laughs> Generally, about 95% of the times. They'll be saying what? Oh, wow, how great is your tie? And your reply is? Depending on my mood at the time, I will either thank them and joke about it. <laughs> or if it's the third in a day, I would be, well... I'm just going to go close my eyes and not answer that question anymore. Okay. Do you remember any other occasions where you got like really annoyed by not being treated the same way as a Thai person would be who looks more like what the taxi driver would expect? Uh, nothing particularly bad has happened, but I think when I look back that especially I look around Bangkok, there are enough Indian Thais here in this country and the people who live in Bangkok have had association with Indian Thai community at some level or the other. 
um, there has to come a point where people have to start acknowledging and stop questioning why or why we should be questioned as not being Thai. So what is the solution in your opinion? Never comment on a person's language ability or what's how should how should no, the I think I think it goes a step beyond that because very often I you know my answer would be yeah I, my Thai is good because I'm Thai and I'm born here but people still question it so they say like no way or what is something it? like that yeah whereas you know I'll give you an example mm -hmm. I went to Australia and Australia is also a very multicultural country And yes, people will ask you where you're from, you know, and they'll comment about your accent, they'll ask about languages. And that's, that's, I don't think there's a problem with that. But when I first went there, the first time somebody asked me where I'm from, and I said, I'm from Thailand, they didn't question it. They just accepted that, yes, she is from Thailand. That's where she's from, if that's her home, whether she's born there or not. And it's, that's what it is. You have to learn to accept people. Mm -hmm. Is there something you think other Indian Thais could do to... I don't think anyone should do anything. You know, we just continue to do what we do, carry on doing our work, carry on socializing with who we socialize with, meet new people meet our existing friends and people just interact and that's it. Mm. Do you remember any other negative consequences from you not looking as people expect you to look with that passport? Or is it mostly just a bit of a nuisance? Yeah, it's more an annoyance rather than anything negative. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever get any benefit from it? Um, the only benefit, I suppose, is if you're traveling abroad and you see other Thai people speaking Thai and they might be gossiping about you and they think you don't understand. But nothing like that's ever happened. It's usually been like a nice surprise that, oh, wow, you speak Thai. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the Thai Indian community, are there things that they care about together? Are there, I don't know, is it like there's a, are there any political affiliations or is there any kind of is there anything else other than let's say certain kind of traditions they uphold I don't think there's anything political per se that's common amongst everybody but definitely one common factor that I see is the same love for the king and the same love and respect for the royal family it's a very big thing amongst the Indian Thai community just as amongst any other ethnic group in Thailand. Do you see any other themes that, you know, recur in that community? I mean, I know, for example, in other countries, you have, like, Indian migrants are often associated with being doctors, like in the uh -huh. US. Yeah. Um, do you see that here as well? No, I don't see one prominent anything. You know, I just see everyone as being individuals who... We have some things in common and a lot of things different. Mm. Well, you used to work in a lot of networking-related functions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. including the British Chamber of Commerce in Thailand. Yes. So you have been to the one or other networking event. 
I have to be in and I have hosted a few, yes. Okay, how much, how many would you say is it roughly? <laughs> well, at the British Chamber, when I was still working there, I think the events team would host at least 80 events to 100 events a year. Mm-hmm. Now, you take that out of, I don't know, 250 working days in a year, so you almost have an event every two days. And that's events that the British Chamber hosts. On top of that, then you've also got other, let's say your members are doing some events, um, embassies are doing events, um, other chambers are doing events. So on any given day, there's a number of events going on around Bangkok. Mm-hmm. How, how do you, what's your experience with these networking events? Are they do you presume they're stressful? Do you? I won't even look at them as stressful. I mean, is it something I enjoy? I can't say that either. But it's easier when you're part of the hosting team because you see people who come in who don't know each other or very often you might get someone who's new to the country and you as the host, you know the people who've been there longer, you know other members, you know other businesses who are there. So you want to make the newcomers feel welcome. And that's part of what these events are about, introducing people to people, making sure people are comfortable, people are making connections. Hmm. I know some people would say that networking events in Bangkok are basically you know, an opportunity to drink and you know, maybe meet some people that yeah. may or may not have any... Well, there are many, many different kinds of networking events. And sure, with many of them, they would serve drinks and some snacks and some food. Now, some people might have been here long enough that, you know, when they go to networking, it's not about always just making sure you meet everybody in the room. It might mean that you see familiar faces and they become friends. Mm. So it's like a nice social way of doing a little bit of business or semi-business, but mostly socializing with friends. Then, of course, you've got another group who may be a bit newer to the group and might be more focused on getting the business. And I don't think there is one formula for either case, you know, it's what you become comfortable with. And there is an element of um, very often there may be expat networking Mm -hmm. and the expat community might not have the same family network that Thai people do in the country. So these business networking become their social networking as well. Mm, do you see any, I mean, that's the thing, all these networking events are usually primarily expats or people catering to expats. Mm-hmm. Are there similar events for Thais or as you say, do they not need them? It's not that. I think um, it's just different style of events that are geared towards what Thai people might see value in. What would be the equivalent for Thai people? So if you go to things that are training, things that are workshops, or things that are more content-focused, 
if you talk about say meetup that are specific to certain skills, certain topic, that's something that you will see more variety of people. So less unstructured, free-form meetups. My impression. Hmm. What would you give as advice to people going to these networking events? I think my advice would be that you can't go in there once and hope to get business. Yeah, it's about building relationship. Do you have any uh, memories of someone uh, like doing that, or just where it just backfires? No, not really. But I think some of them, if they're new, or you know, the say Thai staff who are working for expat bosses. They might feel that it is expected. It might be just a perceived expectation, but they feel that if they've gone there, they need to come back with certain results. A certain number of business cards, or maybe a connection that would lead to a business. But things don't happen overnight. You know, you need to build on that network. You need to build on those connection, and you have to go in there and look at it as. You're just going there to meet people, mm. and don't expect anything out of it. If you get something out of it, it's a bonus. Mm. That's how I look at it. Are there any people you can think of who you think are successful networkers? I think there are lots of people I've met over the years who are very good at building relationship. What do you think is the makes them capable of doing that? I think it's the. The genuine interest in people, uh, the ability to connect, the ability to carry on and continue the conversation—not just, you know, within that narrow scope of when you meet that person. Do you think they are in some way strategic in who they approach, how they? Frame there. No, I don't think so. I, this is why, from my observation, I believe that you really have to go in there as you're not expecting anything except to have a few nice conversation and eat a few friendly faces, and then you never know what comes out of that. Do you see any see it working better for some people than for other for others? I mean, I feel like if I see those networking events, I always feel like oh. If I were a lawyer, mm -hmm. this would be. No, I don't think so. Of course, there are certain events where it's speakers talk, and the content of the the topic is very specific to some industry. Then, of course, you would find more people from that same industry. Say, if you have a talk on infrastructure and transport, you would find more people from. The construction engineering industry. If you go to, you know, things that are say a CSR for hospitality companies, then you would tend to find more people from hotels and related businesses. If you look at the members of those chambers of commerce, my impression is always it's a certain kind of mid to. Large-sized corporation, mm -hmm. and like it's a very specific demographic of companies and people. Actually, it's actually the converse. The majority of memberships are small companies. Uh huh. Yeah. Of course, there are a few key businesses or medium 
bigger businesses that are more prominent. But when you look as a percentage, majority of memberships of chambers of commerce, or at least the foreign chambers of commerce, are small businesses. Uh huh. Is that just because there's more of them, or I think so. Yeah. Mm. What do you see these companies get out of their membership? There's different stages, and of course. No matter whether you're a big or small company, it's also what you put in. You can't simply become a member of a network or of an organization or of a chamber of commerce and expect that by simply doing that, it's going to automatically generate business for you. The chambers provide a platform. They provide the connection. They offer certain additional support, but end of the day. Every business, every person has to put in the work. Is there any specific example you recall of a company being very good at leveraging their chamber membership? I don't think I can give you one example of anything, but it's as I say, you know, you everybody pays a similar amount of membership, but what you get out of it is, say, you might have a certain list of emails. That you can write to, but unless you've met them face to face, you've not built that relationship. So it's not going to be any different to somebody who's not a member writing to somebody from a long list of email, because there is no personal connection. So what's the? I mean, you mentioned the networking events. What is the benefit of being actually a member of a chamber versus just going to chamber it's events? The, it's not just the networking, of course. There are other aspects. So there are things like uh, connections, introductions, where members of the chambers of commerce would be introduced. So, for instance, if new companies are opening up and they wanted to connect with a few businesses in certain industries, the chambers can facilitate that. The introduction. How much weight does it carry? I mean, if people know that the introduction happens because of a membership, which mm -hmm. might be open to a very broad range of companies, how much does that introduction really But count? To an extent, because it's also being screened and pre-selected in terms of there must be common grounds for the people to do business. So the person receiving the email doesn't look at it as um, simply. Some random person has written to me because they think we might be able to do business together. But when it's been through an introduction by the chamber, it's been vetted.、Mm. How do you vet? Well, of course, then you have to ask very specific questions from the person who's writing to you in terms of what they want out of that introduction, what they're hoping to find. So you you kind of screen it down. Of course, you can't make that decision on behalf of anybody, and you are trying to support both sides of businesses. The chambers are bilateral, so it's like German Thai, British Thai, French Thai. Like, how does that work in practice between the two sides? Like, do they have different agendas? Do they have different? You mean between the Thai and the whichever side,、yeah. country? Is that similar in all the chambers? Does some do? Does the Thai side have maybe more weight in some chambers? What's the What's the dynamic there? Well, with the the foreign chambers,、um, every foreign chamber has 
a relationship with the Thai Chamber of Commerce, yeah, and they work together on many issues. So I see it as a very good relationship. Um, certain issues may be more specific to certain countries, and like for example, you know, depending on like say free trade agreement being negotiated between bilaterally between Thailand and whichever other country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when there are issues like that, then the chambers would obviously be working with their respective embassies or maybe even other. Chambers in the region. So, for instance, uh, British chambers in the region, uh, German chambers in the region. Mm-hmm. But also, amongst the foreign chambers in Thailand, they also work on collective issues. There is there is some kind of influence from the Ministry of Commerce on the chamber side. So, you know, the German Ministry of Commerce, British Ministry of Commerce, into the chamber in one form. Directly or indirectly, is that very similar among all the chambers, or does that relationship look different between different chambers? I think every chamber has a different formula on how close the tie is with the government. Some chambers may get funding from their home government, whereas majority of other chambers may be completely self-funding. So. Chamber that basically is only financed by member fees, and what's what's your take on that? Well, I think it's a good thing because then you serve the needs of the members, mm. and you are less influenced by and restricted by the official relationship. Is that commonly known which chambers fall into which category? Well, it is, yes. Like what's a good example of either category? Okay, well, the German Chamber is funded in part by the German government. Is there? And you said there's some chambers that are completely self-financed. Would mm-hmm. be an example of that. I believe the American Chamber is. The British Chamber, for majority of the time, was self-financed. They did have a short-term, fixed-term project, working together with the. British government. Do you perceive any impact of that funding, like in terms of the work the chambers do? I don't, because um, the people who run the chambers, especially the ones here in Thailand, many of them have been running chambers. Whether it's the you know the executive team running it and the board members running it, they have. A lot of experience running businesses, and they know the business environment so well. I mean, one of the as uh, events that some chambers are getting uh, involved in is uh, educational side of things. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you mentioned you you were studying in Australia, so you actually have experience to education systems in Thailand, in India, in Australia. What's your personal? Take on how I mean. Obviously, you were though at different places at different stages. But mm-hmm. have you personally experienced differences in how it works? It's hard to say because, as you mentioned, you know, it was very different stage of my life. Like my primary school, I barely remember what I studied in primary school. But I think, in general, um, Australia would give a lot of emphasis on. Evaluating, teaching 
students to or equipping them with the the ability to question things so that they can think and they can reason and they can debate and argue and form their own opinions. Do you think that can even be taught at a later stage? I mean, once you get to the point where you go to a postgraduate degree in Australia, like this whole questioning, I mean, a lot of that is not just technique like or skill, it's like an attitude or value system. So I mean, when people send their kids or if they decide to do a degree abroad to pick up something mm -hmm. else yeah. wouldn't it make more sense to send people abroad at an earlier age i don't think that's the solution i think the solution is we need to look at how is the education system in thailand what are we missing what can be introduced into the system because not everybody wants to go abroad not everybody wants to or not everybody can afford to go abroad and I don't believe that just simply by going abroad will make us better. I would rather like to see how can we make the education system in Thailand equip our students and our kids with the ability to learn and to question and to form their own thinking. Do you have the impression that was done better in India? I can't say. I didn't really have any strong sense either way. Yeah. Mm. What is, I mean, you had some, well, exposure to the field of education, mm -hmm. both professionally and, of course, personally. Yeah. Is there something that you would strongly favor as a change in the, like a specific measure you would like to see as a change in the Thai education system? I think the... No, This, this comment, I feel it's not just Thailand. It's probably almost all across Asia. There's a lot of emphasis on academic learning that, you know, we put this pressure and expectation on students to perform really well academically. But the world has changed. It's not about what you learn in subject class about history or maths or English or science or engineering it could be very important for some but what i wish people would recognize is there's also a whole range of other skills that are very useful and can make someone very successful in life and it might not be happening in the mainstream education that we see in today's curriculum things like you know crafts arts uh, performances You're involved in a summer camp organization for kids, right? Yes, I am. So do you, in this camp, do you focus on these things? We do, we do. Um, parents that send their children there what, love what, it. Sorry, what's for, it called? It's called iCamp Thailand. iCamp Thailand, yeah, and okay. Parents love it for those very same reason. You know, they, some of them, the kids are so young, they're about eight, nine, ten, and they spend all their time either going to classes extra tutoring classes or they're locked up in computer games and gadgets but they've just completely forgotten everything else outside of that and then you put them in an environment where they can enjoy other skills that they've never done before and they excel at it and they enjoy it and they love it and the kids who go to these summer camps are those primarily international school kids high school kids it's both The camp we run is run in English language. 
we don't offer English lessons, but we run it in English. So what that means is uh, you do get a lot of international school kids, not just from Thailand, but also from abroad. But you also get Thai school kids, but majority tend to be Thai school kids who are in the EP, which is English program. Mm. If you look at the international school kids in Thailand, and obviously international schools are a big topic because they're very expensive. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, education is one of the biggest expenses they have living here. Yeah. And they look at the different high schools, decide where to send their kids. And one common criticism I hear from people working in that system is that everybody's just looking at the top performing mm -hmm. or the performance part. Yeah. It's more about, you know, who can we show who went to a famous university mm. rather than can we, enable, can we enable every student to really reach their potential. Do you have any advice for people? The way I would approach things would be if I were to have a kid and there was something they enjoyed doing and they excelled at it, even if it's not academic, I would want to support that and give them the chance to develop those skills. Do you think those opportunities are always here in Thailand? It depends. I mean, the other thing is, you know, we give too much emphasis on university degree, but we are not giving enough value to vocational skills. And in reality, that's very much in demand and very much in need. So if your family members have got those whatever type of vocational skill and they want to pursue it. My point is we shouldn't stop them. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a good note to end on. Thank you. And um, when, if people want to find out more about you, um, the work you do and uh, ICAMP, how can they do that? Well, our website is worldwideweb.icampthailand.com. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to find more about me in terms of what I do with regards to training, facilitating workshop, um, project management, they can find me on LinkedIn under Sarinton Sachabirawong. Okay, and everybody who can spell that uh, <laughs> immediately already uh, has a leg up on everybody else. Uh, we'll put up links to all of that in the show notes. And, okay, thank um, you. Jody. thank you very much for taking the time for the interview today. It was a pleasure of having you. Thanks for having me on your show. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time.